Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. A seed grows with no sound, but a tree falls with a tremendous noise. Destruction has noise, but creation is quiet. This is the power of silence. Grow silently. Chinese philosopher Confucius. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and welcome to another episode of The Hustler Files. We're here each week to be storytellers and share information and education that's happening within the prison system and the criminal justice system, and we hope that you enjoy these stories because we know that failure isn't final. So sit back and enjoy this week's The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. If you joined us a few weeks ago, uh, we had a great conversation with Ed Hayes and Levin Schwartz, who are assistant superintendents with the Franklin County, Massachusetts Sheriff's Office. And because we left so much on the table, we've invited Ed and Levin back to rejoin us. So, Ed and Levin, welcome back to The Hustler Files. Thanks for having us. Lisa, uh, happy to be back. Thank you. Once again, let's identify yourselves (laughs) just for our listeners' edification. My name is Levin Schwartz. I'm an assistant superintendent at the Sheriff's Department and a licensed social worker. And I'm Ed Hayes. I work for uh, Sheriff Chris Donnellan as well with Levin. Okay. So everybody's got their voices on who's speaking so we don't have to do identification on on each conversation. So last we spoke, we kind of left off with the conversation about the both of you travel around the country, you go to a lot of conferences, you're very deeply involved at multiple levels within the sheriff's office. You don't have one model of your resume that you follow within the sheriff's office. You've really evolved into this whole forward movement of growing the progressiveness of the jail and prison system. Let's pick up before we dig into some of the other things we were going to talk about, including federal Medicaid. But let's finish off with what are some of the things you've come across in other states that are so blatantly different than what we have here in Massachusetts? Well, there's it's quite varied. <clears throat> so states have a lot of authority. They have, you know, relatively complete authority on how they want to design their carceral systems. And so, as you can imagine, it's it's quite varied by region, by state. Um, in certain states, you'll see a high number of private jails, private prisons in Massachusetts uh, where we're broadcasting from. There are none. And there's different policies. You know, there's different uh, regions that are more forward for treatment. There are different uh, regions that are more forward for punishment. And uh, there's really different outcomes that you can see. There's a lot of research into what's going well and what's not going well throughout the country. 
So there's jails, and mm-hmm. then there's prisons, and then there's private industry prisons. So I think the numbers we came up with on the private industry side, there's over 400 prisons around mm-hmm. the country. And on the prison side, which is House of Corrections, as far as states go, there's over 1,100. And do you know how many jails there are around the country? Between four and 5,000. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot. So you can expect to see a jail in a county, or even in a county, you can have uh, municipal jails. So like cities will have a jail. And one of the reasons I wanted to define private industry, Bureau of Prisons, which is, you know, Uncle Sam, federal, and then the jail system, is because one of the things we wanted to touch on during this part two of you coming back to join us, the Hustler Files, is the federal Medicaid program. So... Um, we want to make sure our listeners understand the differentiation because, you know, federal Medicaid and then we have federal prisons, mm-hmm. which is the Bureau of Prisons, but then we have the whole local jail system. So walk us through this federal Medicaid program. Medicaid is a safety net health insurance that's provided by the federal government. And when that law was first written and enacted, the idea was that federal Medicaid dollars would not go into any kind of jail or prison. So if you were incarcerated in any kind of location, even in a federal prison or in a state prison, or in any kind of jail, you would no longer have access to those Medicaid dollars. So Mm -hmm. if you were incarcerated, you didn't get any Medicaid dollars. But once you became released, were you eligible for Medicaid at that point? Or did that stigma of having served time carry forward? It does not, although a caveat is that some states don't, you know, how the states handle these federal Medicaid Federal Medicaid dollars is quite different. Mm -hmm. Some states signed on to the Affordable Care Act, and those are called Medicaid expansion states. The model for the Federal Affordable Care Act was based on the Massachusetts model of mass health. So that's the name of our product. So if you're a mass health recipient, right, and so you're receiving uh, federal benefits to have health care, if you become incarcerated, those benefits turn off. And so what that means is if you're in a jail or a prison anywhere, it's up to the jail or the prison to pay for all of the medications that you need, all of the medical care that you need out of their line item. So if you have one year with a bunch of sick people, then that can that that's a big blow on your budget. If you have a year where there's not a lot of sick people, then you know, there's more money saved. And so you can see how there might be an incentive to treat people a certain way to save money. And that's, you know, often below the standard of care. Yeah, that's the part that I was particularly interested. The big blow is that it divorced a lot of the compliance and oversight that you would find in outpatient treatment facilities. The standards of care are wildly different than people for carceral systems. And because it was divorced from Medicaid, right? And so you had these systems, just like Ed was saying, that they had to decide how they were going to spend their money. You have to have security in a prison for treatment to happen, right? And you often see more emphasis put towards that historically than on addiction treatment, than on behavioral health treatment, than on reentry aftercare services historically. Yeah. So is the federal Medicaid program across the board now in all prisons and jails no. or is it still it's still falling under that Obamacare umbrella? There's been some changes. So 
way back in the 1960s when the law was enacted, you know, passing the, some kind of a giant country-changing bill like that, of course, is controversial. So there was this idea, like, if you've, if you've been punished, if you've been found accountable, or if you're being held accountable for a crime that you, you've done, you have forfeited your right to that benefit. And so that was the thinking at the time. What we've discovered today is, you know, we're in 2023, it actually promotes public safety to offer good treatment in jails. And part of that is medical care. And part of that is pharmaceuticals um, for psychiatric care. Part of that is addiction care. And so there's a, a big push to move Medicaid dollars into jails. And so currently they're prohibited, right? But 14 states have applied for a waiver. It's, there's something called the Medicaid inmate exclusion policy, and that's what prohibits the Medicaid dollars from going in. So Massachusetts was one of 14 states that applied, and um, California was the biggest state. It's the most populous state, of course. And so they applied, and they were uh, approved by the federal government. And so these other 13 states that have applied are all being approved according to, like, the uh, format of what happened to California. So here in Massachusetts, this was approved. And so we're looking at, a, like, um, 2025 might be the implementation time. But when that happens, Medicaid will be able to um, be accessed by people in jails and prisons in Massachusetts and these other 13 states in the last 90 days of their incarceration. And, you know, Levin knows how that's important. Well, I mean, <laughs> in, <laughs> how do I segue from that? I mean, it's important in so many different ways. It'll cement in the menu of services care that is of standards that meet outpatient parity with outpatient clinics. It'll allow us to do and offer things like intensive trauma treatment. This population is so transient, has so many needs. If you were a veteran, for example, you could go get six weeks of inpatient PTSD treatment. If you were a private citizen and had finances and insurance and had a stable house, uh, housing and an outpatient therapist, you could go to McLean Center and get intensive inpatient PTSD treatment. Roughly 90% of this population suffers from PTSD or suffers from trauma symptoms, whether they meet criteria for PTSD or not, and don't have access to that intensive level of care. So it'll allow us, for example, to think about, okay, this environment can now become more of a treatment environment, even more so than it is now, how we conceptualize it. We can offer intensive PTSD treatment for individuals who suffer with addiction. And if you think about why why people move towards addiction, really the question is, why is there so much pain in their life? There's so much pain in their life because there's so much trauma in their life. And we're going to come back to that. I think we need to take a quick break right now. So Ed and Levin, if you'll hang on a second, I do want to also dig in when we get back to talk a little bit more about why only 14 states have applied for this Medicaid waiver when we have millions of people incarcerated across the U.S. So sit tight, everybody, and you're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. A hero is someone who makes the world a better place. And if you're an RN, LPN, mental health clinician, or counselor, then you're already a hero because you value wellness, treatment of disease, and prevention of illness. So why not dedicate your next career move to a place where heroes make a difference every day? The Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Join a team where you can offer empathy and opportunity by just being who you are, a hero. Visit hcsoma.org or just Google the Hamden County Sheriff's Office and join a team where being a hero is a daily occurrence. We are back. And if you're just joining us, we have invited Ed 
and Levin from the Franklin County Sheriff's Office to come back and join us for a part two conversation because there was a lot of information that we left on the table when they joined us a few weeks ago and they are so entrenched in the prison system. So Ed and Levin, thank you again for stopping by. (laughs) Thank you. We were just talking about federal Medicaid and I wanted to drill down a little bit on that. So you said 14 states applied for waivers to get the Medicaid in the jails, local jails and prisons, not private industry, just to clarify. So it's state and county jails or it's only county jails? State, county. Yep. Okay. And you said while we were at break that it's a two-year process just to process the application? Well, it <laughs> to draft the application, it took us about two years, which is the going rate for <laughs> how long it takes to come up with a plan. And uh, our plan was provisionally approved. You know, our state is, uh, the federal government asked for some edits and some more clarifications. So we're working on that. And it's going to take us about a couple of years to implement. So we're looking at a start date in Massachusetts of July 1, 2025. For as much as we all talk about you know, the processes and how long it may take. And sometimes we don't get the treatment. Our treatment is still far better than some other countries around the world. We have the highest quality. I mean, there's, I can't think of countries that have a higher quality level of care, but in the United States, the problem is equity of like who has access to that care. That's right. And so we were discussing before about Medicaid and in order to apply for this kind of a waiver, in states that applied for the waiver, it does not necessarily fall on blue state versus red state. But let me tell you, there's about 10 states that did not choose to offer the Affordable Care Act to the citizens of their state. And those are red states or purple. And basically, it means that there is not that same level of safety net treatment available. And you know what? We see people in our jail in Franklin County who have left their states because they had an opioid addiction or some other problem, and they could not get treatment there. They could not afford to pay for it because that that was not available to them. And meanwhile, you know, other states do offer this kind of treatment. And this treatment is really directly connected to public safety. I mean, addiction, public safety are, are like together very often. And and we talk all the time about, I think the numbers are around 80 to 85% of people incarcerated have some kind of an addiction or opioid, you know, addiction or alcohol addiction usage. And that was what got them in trouble in the first place. And Levin, you deal with this a lot. Do you want to sort of talk to us about maybe some of the new things that are happening because it does all go back to trauma? And, you know, it's really hard because when you talk to people on the outside, when I talk to people not on the show and talk about what I've learned about trauma and how much it is involved Mm -hmm. in people's addiction habits, and a lot of people don't, they put blinders on. They don't want to realize that yeah. there's trauma that is the base for a lot of this addiction issue. And then they think about all the people, you know, if it's, let's say there's a million people incarcerated and that number's larger than that. If 85% of them have addiction, we're talking 850,000 people that are in jail or in prison because of an addiction issue. Yeah. Well, when behavior happens that breaks the law, that hurts other people, I think accountability is absolutely important. And that a lot of the behavior, the dysregulation that happens when when you see kind of violence happens in interpersonal situations, oftentimes it involves substances. When you talk about theft, 
Oftentimes, when people are addicted, it's motivated by the need to regulate the body connected to addiction, urges, and cravings. So it's, it's not so simple as to say it's just a disease. It's not so simple just to say that they're traumatized, so they shouldn't be incarcerated. It's, it's, it's complicated. But what's not complicated to me is that there's so much pain in this population. And this pain primarily is caused by people who have had traumatic childhoods, poverty, racism, sexism exploitation, all connected and intertwined with addiction. And so if we're going to continue locking people up, if this is the way we're going to go, wouldn't you want people leaving these systems and returning to your neighborhood better regulated than when they went into the system? It seems pretty simple to me. That seems simple. So if that is the case, if you want better communities, if you want healthier citizens, if you want safer neighborhoods, then we have to provide the best care we can while we have this opportunity, Mm -hmm. while people are incarcerated. It's not ideal, right? But thinking about it as an arm of the public safety net, as opposed to some some Alcatraz where, you know, they go away and and don't receive anything, that doesn't make any sense to me. So what we're interested in doing is, is providing the best possible treatment in, in a way when we have this opportunity with them, whether it's hep C treatment, whether it's trauma treatment, intensive trauma treatment, whether it's exploring things like psychedelic-assisted treatment, which has phenomenal rates. You know, ketamine, for example, right now is FDA-approved for treatment-resistant depression. And to meet criteria for treatment-resistant depression, you have to have failed on two SSRIs. However, it's also very complicated, just as it was complicated to offer buprenorphine or methadone in systems where people are struggling with opioid addiction and historically had been seen as contraband in these systems, to then say, well, this is the standard of care in the community. We need to offer the standard of care, primarily because it's so effective. It doesn't mean it solves everything, right? There's lots of things to work on beyond that, but this is a piece of the pie, just like mental health symptoms are a piece of the pie, just like coaching how to navigate through adversity is a piece of the pie. Just like knowing that you're not alone when you leave, right? And there's someone to turn to. Uh, you know, part of our program is a post-release program. So this idea of expanding the boundaries of what where these walls are, right? Making them more porous, meaning when they leave, they still have access to care. So with this new, currently, let's look at the current situation. So someone is being treated with any of these different drugs while they're incarcerated, they leave prison, how do they continue to get that care and get those medications, especially if they can't find work? Are the Affordable Care Act states providing that medication free for them, even though they're still maybe unemployed? And if they can't get that medication, of course, I would presume that that just spirals them back into prison again, and that's why our recidivism rates are so high. Let's talk about Massachusetts first and what we do, and then we could talk a little bit more about nationally. Although we should clarify that yeah. <laughs> we currently don't offer ketamine-assisted treatment. C- this correct. is something that we're very interested to explore. Right. It's cutting edge. So we want to take this kind of uh, treatment for the rich and offer it for the poor. But Levin, why don't you explain? Here in our system, when people leave, they're they're offered support with a post-release caseworker. And so that's one piece of the pie, which is they're not alone in navigating the system. If their insurance gets deactivated, they have someone to turn to to help support them over and over and over again. However, there's also, we have really great community partners, right? So we have in-reach from community partners. And with the MIAP expansion, this is going to drastically change everything. There's going to be more in-reach. There's going to be more capacity of uh, kind of like the overlap of the Venn diagram is going to include community supports more and more and more, especially for places that don't offer it. 
right? But we we have a model that already kind of offers that Venn diagram. And so, you know, there's there's transportation, there's support services, there's coaching services here in the facility. But even though we're rural in Massachusetts, we have access to tremendous care in the community. The continuity is much higher. There's still some methadone deserts, right? There's still some treatment deserts, but it's not like New Mexico, <laughs> you know, where we're talking rural areas that have tribal lands that there's really very little continuity of care access. So here, we're positioned pretty well. Across the country, it's much more complicated. I know what you're talking about. I mean, not from the medical incarceration side, but I've driven through parts of New Mexico and driven through the tribal lands and the poverty is just, you wouldn't think you would see that in a Mm -hmm. country like the United States. You would think it was a third world country. So it makes complete sense that people living there are so traumatized by that poverty level of, of survival that they start doing things that would get them incarcerated. So back to my other question, is Medicaid available to people once they're released to continue their medication. Levin mentioned having community partners is really important. And one of the greatest community partners that we have, if you work in a jail, is the Medicaid Office of Massachusetts Mass Health. They have been amazing. They are really interested to fill this gap this void to help bring the standard of care for people who are in the carceral system up. You know, when people come to our jail, we're often the first medical provider of note that that patient has seen in many years. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot for us to do. One of the things that we do um, very intensively is continuity of care planning. And MassHealth has been nothing but a great partner with us. So when someone leaves our facility, they will have relatively immediate access to their insurance, which they need. So like if you're a methadone patient and you leave jail, you need methadone like the next day or that day. You know, it's not like an appointment that you make three weeks from now. So everything needs to be set up. And so states that are able to offer that, it's not just about providing medical care, which I think is an important thing. This really dramatically affects public safety because we're, we're helping to stabilize people, people who would otherwise be in acute crisis, and we're able to help support them. It's when people are in these acute crises, that's when you see the vast majority of like public safety incidents. Mm-hmm. You know, you have these like legendary crime stories of like mafiosos putting hits on, on people. That, that's like not what we see, right? That's like a tiny percentage of what exists in our carceral system. What we see is people, petty theft, domestic violence, assault and battery, all crimes that are related to substance use disorders and trauma. We're not meeting conditions of probation or not meeting other supervision conditions, right? And so these these systems have to evolve and have to figure out how to work together. One of the things that I, I love the most about the MIAP piece is that you have wide swaths of people trying to solve a problem collectively from different angles. I think where we run into problems is when you have a single entity, such as probation or the, an office of community probation, saying this is how we're going to do it, independent of all other research or all other experts. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's what MIAP is really helping to to bring lots of players to the table. And what does MIAP stand that's for? That's the it's the sort of like project name. So MIEP stands for Medicaid Inmate Exclusion Policy. And so this is that waiver. We're trying to have a waiver so that Medicaid can come in, so that it would be like Medicaid inclusion inmate policy instead of exclusion. Right. 
Well, this conversation is never going to go away, and it's going to keep evolving, and there'll be new medications introduced. We're getting ready to run out of time here. And I know last time you were here, we asked about your life assignments, so I can't ask you that again because we already talked about that. But what I did want to ask you each is if you could wave a magic wand over the world that you work in, in, in what you put your, your energy and your passion into every day, what's the one thing that really stands out that you'd like to change? Ed? Well, I <laughs> since we've been talking about Medicaid, that's what's on my mind. There are some holdout states that are just not allowing these Medicaid dollars into their state. And that's for partisan philosophical reasons that money shouldn't be spent to help poor people have health care. I don't know. If I could wave my wand, <laughs> I would I would have those states have access to this kind of treatment because it's basically like saying no to something that could really help the most vulnerable people that are in that state. I, I wish that would change. That's a great wish. That really is, and good for you. And so you put it out to the universe now. <laughs> so let's let's hope uh, we start to see some press on the Medicaid changing in those states. Levin, how about you, and what would you do with your magic wand? I think my magic wand would touch school systems, would touch family systems, and would touch carceral systems, and to think about ways in which we can intercept and support people through adversity and to develop a wider capacity to help shape behavior. Oftentimes schools use punishment, jails use punishment, families use punishment as the only mechanism to control. And I think that if we can start to decide and and, and cultivate an awareness of what matters truly, like in, in in what ways do I want to be moving towards things in my life? And what are the behaviors that support that movement? To, to, to be able to move towards those things despite the adversity. And so all that coaching and all that support, all that early intervention, and all these ways to transform systems to help people move towards the areas in the life that, that actually truly matter. That's a really great wish, too. So thank you both. I'm sure we'll be talking with you soon. <laughs> cool. Thank Our you. pleasure. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Sit tight. We'll be right back with more of The Hustler Files. Did you know the Franklin County Sheriff's Office has programs to support our seniors? This is Sheriff Chris Donnelly. Our triad unit provides free medical equipment to senior citizens who need help staying in their homes. This could mean the difference between going home after rehab or into a nursing home. Our incarcerated men at the Franklin County Jail work to repair and maintain donated wheelchairs, scooters, walkers, and hospital beds that we then make available to seniors for free. Just another service our Sheriff's Office is proud to provide for you and your family. We are back. Sometimes, no matter how much healing, growing, and changing we've done, our inner critique can and will rear its head. In these moments, I've learned to remind myself what the truth is. And in the moments that the truth feels hard to recall, I remind myself what I want to be true in my life and legacy. And that's another wrap for this week's The Hustler Files. We really appreciate you joining us and sharing these stories through the podcast network, which you can find on Amazon and Apple and Spotify and SoundCloud, or you can just go to the whmp.com podcast page. We know that the more you share the stories we tell, the more we can activate change in the prison reform and criminal justice system. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. Ever 
thought of being a correctional officer, but not sure you'd qualify? Listen up. Be at least 19 with no age cap. Already a social worker? Social workers make great COs. No previous experience? That's okay. We'll train you. Full-time positions come with excellent health, dental, and life insurance, a pension, and other benefits of a state job. If you believe people can overcome the worst chapters in their life, then you've got the right stuff to be a correctional officer with the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. Visit hcsoma.org to join the team today.